Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentz.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 77. This week, I sit down with Derek Barguer of Vanguard Audio Labs to chat about creating great-sounding original microphone designs, the importance of understanding your tools, how to use polar pattern and mic placement to best capture a source, and the difference between studying the theory versus learning by doing. And it's that last bit that inspired me for this intro. In the interview, Derek jokes and says that he doesn't have any formal electronics education and that he attended the School of Experience. And the more I thought about that statement, the more I think it might be the only school that matters. And as most of you know, I have a formal higher education in music where I focused on engineering. And I got a lot out of that experience, and I would trade it in. But it wasn't that I attended a school that made me any good at recording or mixing music. See, when I was in college, I spent hundreds of hours in the studio, more than many other students in the program. And by doing so, I accumulated so much extra hands-on experience that I got to really understand the stuff that was being taught in class, or at least think I did. And I also got to build career-long relationships with the other studio-obsessed students that I'd see doing sessions at 4 a.m. A lot of these people I still call friends today, and many of them have even been on this show. And yes, the studios were open from 7 a.m. to the following 6 a.m. It was an absolute madhouse. So then I came to L.A., and I didn't get a job because I had a degree. I got a job because I'd worked with an engineer who recommended me to Capital. And when I started there, the first thing I learned was that I knew just enough to hurt myself and that I needed to relearn a lot of things. Everything I'd obsessed over learning and practicing was really just the theory. And now I was in the real world, and the real world was different. So after a few years of Capital, relearning and experiencing, I went to go work for a producer. Once again, not because I had a degree, but because I had experience. And this trend of my career continues like this all the way to the present day. Doing work, experimenting, and learning things in the real world is ultimately the only way to master the craft of music or music production. Now, before I continue, I should say that I'm not trying to discourage anyone from attending higher education. Just remember that you will get out of it what you put in. If you take tests, pass, and collect a diploma, you'll have a very different outcome than someone who takes tests, passes, collects a diploma, and immerses themselves in every aspect of their focus or craft. That second person is actually attending the school of experience while attending the school of theory. So that being said, don't eliminate college from your to-do list if that is what you really want to do. Just make sure that you do the work to be the best you can be while you're there. So enough about colleges. There's this funny thing that I see happening today, and I think it's super important to take note of and I've participated in it myself. There is so much information out there that we can sometimes get obsessed with learning all of it. You can ingest YouTube videos and articles all day long. You can read business or self-help books all day long. 
You can listen to great podcasts or watch people make dope music on Twitch all day long. You can literally learn all day, which is amazing. The vast array of opportunities to learn knowledge both inside and outside of an institution these days are absolutely mind-blowing. But remember, that is all the school of theory until you make it the school of experience. Like I said before, experience will be the only thing that matters for you. If you aren't doing, if you aren't starting, then you aren't going to master anything. You cannot learn to become a great musician, a great producer, a great mixer, or a great artist. You can only do those things by experiencing music. Today's guest is engineer, audio technician, and microphone designer Derek Barguer. Derek is the chief everything officer and co-founder of Vanguard Audio Labs. He created Vanguard with one goal, to give musicians and engineers access to great and affordable tools. And he's done just that. He's got rave reviews from some of the best engineers in the industry, and Vanguard's microphones have found a place in studio mic lockers everywhere. So welcome to the show, Derek Barguer. How's it going, Derek? It's going good. It's a beautiful Friday in Pennsylvania, so glad to be here. Nice, nice. Well, I'm glad you could join us. I was actually thinking to myself, we talked about this before, I was like, oh, 8 a.m. is really early for California. He must be an early riser, but it's, uh, it's 11 for you. It's 11 for me, but I have been up since 6, and I go to bed at like 8. I'm one of those weirdos. So, uh, See, I'm the same way. I get up at 5, and I fall asleep on the couch around 8.39. So I'm with you. All right. <laughs> We're, we can be grumpy old men together. That's nice. That's right. That's right. So we met down at NAMM a few months ago. I was talking to you and uh, one of the guys on your team. Was it Judd? It was Judd, yeah. Yeah. And you were just so passionate about microphones. I was like, shit. I was like, this guy has to come on the show and tell his story and talk about mics. And you offered me a beer, but I was about to leave, so I couldn't have it. So here we are. There's still no beer, though, but we'll get that. We'll make that happen next time. Next time for sure. (laughs) Next time. So I usually just kind of start things off with how people got into music. When you were a kid, were you playing music? Were you from a musical family? What's your musical origin story? Yeah, I, I, I was from a fairly musical family. My dad still plays piano to this day. And we always had a piano in the living room. And I would kind of tinkle around on that and listen to my dad play all the time. And then um, really started playing on my own. I picked up the bass, I think in junior high, because like many kids, you know, friends wanted to start a band. And they didn't have a bassist. And my brother had a bass. So there I was um, learning bass. I learned to like playing along with old Led Zeppelin stuff. And so, yeah, kind of started there. And I don't call myself a bassist. I say that <laughs> I own a bass. I actually went to when I went to college, I started as a philosophy major. And then I found out that philosophy students are insufferable. And I was like, I cannot be around you guys because this is just awful. So (laughs) I ended up switching to music because I really liked music and quickly figured out that everybody there was a better musician than I was. They'd been doing it longer. They'd actually been practicing. And I was more of a tinkerer. And uh, yeah, kind of from there, eventually moved into microphones. There was a logical progression from, well, you know, if I end up recording and producing, then I get the same amount of album credit as the guys that are doing all the work playing. And all I have to do is push buttons. And then ended up interning for a microphone company and was like, you know, if I build the gear, then everybody that pushes buttons with my gear, I kind of get credit for that too. So (laughs) at least that's the joke I tell. But yeah, that's sort of the progression that it was being a ham-fisted musician that got me here. That's amazing. That's like, uh, you know, minus the microphone part, very similar to me. I started playing bass in junior high because my friends were playing a talent show and 
they needed a bass player and I was like, okay, I'll do it. And then I, I wasn't allowed to play because it's too bad. But uh, yeah, and then went to college and I was like, hey, look at all these people that are way better at this. I want to press buttons. So when did you get into electronics? Was that a thing when you were a kid too or, or did, was that later? Oh, yeah. I was always taking stuff around, apart around the house that I had no business taking apart. <laughs> My parents got real mad because I like took something apart. I think it was a copy machine and then left it plugged in to see if it would still work. So there was, you know, 120 volts running through this thing. And my parents were like, he's like eight and he's going to electrocute himself. So they started cutting the plugs off everything I took apart, which was kind of a bummer. And that's kind of why I learned how to solder because I wanted to plug it back in. But (laughs) actually, I got into the musical electronics part and really started learning like my first. I think the first thing I learned about was a simple like an RC filter, which basically an RC or CR filter is a passive electronics way for to make either a high pass filter like a low a low cut or a low pass filter or a high cut. And it's just a resistor and a capacitor. One of them is going to ground and one of them is passing signal, depending on whether the capacitor is the one passing signal across or whether it's the one pulling to ground, you'll either have a high cut or a low cut. And I learned about that because when I was playing bass, all the guitarists I knew had really cool pedals and there weren't a lot of bass pedals around yet at that point. There were very few. And instead of actually getting better at bass, I was like, well, I want my bass to sound cool like these guys. I want a flanger or a phaser or a distortion, but you plug a bass into like a guitar distortion pedal and it loses all the low end. Right. So I had to figure out how to modify the way like the tone stack on a big muff worked and stuff like that. So I actually still have the first pedal I modified, which was a Russian big muff. And I modified the tone stack to make it more friendly to bass frequencies and found an online calculator to figure out where the corner was going to be and everything. And, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how I got into it was modifying guitar pedals for bass frequencies. That's super cool. Just a nerd question. How does that work? So is there like a filter on the signal going into the big muff and you were adjusting it to keep low end or or what what was the tweak that you made there? Yeah, so the big muff has a what's called like a tone stack circuit on it and it's without getting too complicated cuz I'm going to start describing a schematic here. Basically, it's just a resistor capacitor series um, that when you turn the knob, it's like a tilt almost towards a towards low frequency or towards high frequency. Right. And where those frequencies are centered depends on the values of those components. So they were more built for guitar to make it like a guitar fuzz. And I cornered them more towards bass. It actually kind of sounds awful the way I did it. I keep telling myself one day I'm going to like put new caps in there and do better change it up a little bit because it's just way too subby on one side and then it's way too like farty on the other side so yeah i have to definitely one of these days i'm going to fix it although when you run it into like an auto wah it sounds pretty cool so i've I've left it as is for now it sounds very synthy and wacky but um that's cool yeah so it's basically all i did was change component values on the circuit board which was easier said than done because the circuit boards that those were built on were very fragile and soldering and desoldering on them was just a nightmare (laughs) (laughs) so you mentioned that you worked for a microphone company was that that was avon tone yeah so ken avant who's my current partner at vanguard was the founder of that company and i interned there in college, I needed an internship to graduate, and I'd just heard these horror stories about like studio internships and stuff like that, like running coffee and scrubbing toilets and cleaning up after awful clients and stuff no like comment. that. <laughs> yeah, you had one of those, eh? 
Been there, done that, yeah. Okay, all right. So I was already starting at that point to like repair friends' gear. Like their guitar jack would get, you know, one of the wires would start coming loose and they'd get scratchy stuff or their cable would start going bad. And then one of my professors had a Jupiter 8, like one of the old school ones that one of the oscillators was going flat that he asked me to take a look at. So that was like the scariest repair project I've ever done because that thing's worth like an insane amount of money. But yeah, I started kind of teching for other people. And I said, well, you know, I really like these Avantone microphones because at the time they were one of the very few companies that were hitting in the mid range of pricing. It was either like $99 MXLs in the 80s that, that you just have to beat to death in the mix to get a usable sound. Or I could go into even more debt as a college student and acquire like a nice Neumann or AKG. And I was going to a private university in the USA. So I had enough college debt as it was. You didn't need any more. And I wasn't about to sell a kidney to get a microphone. Even though Mexico was only a couple hours away, it just felt like a bad, bad decision to make that early in my life. So ended up buying some Avantone mics and said, these are actually like really, really usable and something that I can afford as a college student. So I wrote them and I asked for a job and then I called them and I was like, listen, I got to do an internship. You get like 160 hours of free labor. So this is a win for you. I know how to solder. I know the basics of electronics. And I interned for them. And after my internship, they were like, we really like you. You've done a lot. We will pay you to do this instead. And I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. Imagine a music major coming out of school with a job, like a real job. So I ended up being there for, I want to say four years. And I was doing, by the end, I was doing a little bit of everything, operations and shipping and building mics and helping develop some new mics. Ken was teaching me a lot about actual microphone capsules and transduction and things like that. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I got there. It was a series of happy accidents, I guess, like many things in life. It was just a, a matter of circumstance and luck and some hard work, but circumstance makes a lot of it. But you were prepared for the opportunity. You knew your stuff. Completely on accident. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought I knew my stuff, but I, you know, as I keep doing Vanguard, I'm still like, oh man, I do not know enough about this. I feel like an imposter most days. (laughs) I think most everybody says that. Uh, You said you dug into the Jupiter 8 and you started trying to fix that oscillator. Mm -hmm. Where were you getting your kind of your electronics background? Like, yeah, I mean, how did you even know how to troubleshoot going into one of these vintage synths coming from messing with guitar pedals? Well, there are, you know, you can find schematics online for just about everything now. It was a little harder back then. It was mostly on forums as opposed to just a Google image search for a Jupiter 8 schematic or something like that. But back when that sort of stuff was made, an audio engineer was actually sort of an electrical engineer, too. So a lot of the microphones and gear that you got actually came with the schematic in the back of the manual with voltages in certain places and stuff um, so that anybody that was an audio engineer that had some electrical background could diagnose problems. So a lot of people scan those into their computers and provided them on forums on um, there was a there was a Yahoo group for a while. I don't even remember the name of it now that I learned a lot of stuff from just as a bright eyed, bushy tailed kid who didn't know what he was doing, asking dumb questions and older guys answered them for me. So A lot of my electronics knowledge was from that. And then the other part was from, I I guess, trial and error is the best way to say it. You know, like you learn by doing right. You know, and I I didn't have any textbooks or anything like that. I just kind of would research stuff and gain a piece of knowledge here and a piece of knowledge there. And then you read an article about AC versus DC and Ohm's law and impedance. And and you're starting to to get all these little 
disparate bits of knowledge. And then when it comes down to uh, what you're working on, those start to come in handy. And then you learn more stuff by doing. Like a side tangent story is when we first developed the V44S, I had a problem for a long time with, uh, there's a, a, a Cockroft Walton voltage ramp. And behind that is basically an oscillator that takes some DC, generates a small AC signal, with it, which then gets like amplified and turned back into DC at a very small current in order to take a small 6.8 volts and turn it into like a 90 volt biasing voltage for the capsule. I was having so much trouble with this thing when I was working on it and we were developing the V44S and I couldn't figure out why it wasn't working, why it wasn't doing what I wanted it to. I ended up just diving into articles and one of my buddies who is an electrical engineer gave me his art of electronics textbook and ended up learning just so much about those specific little circuit snippets because there was a problem and I had to figure it out because it was my company. If I didn't figure it out, I'd wasted a bunch of time and money trying to develop a stereo microphone that didn't work, you know? So I I guess uh, it's partly bred of like necessity, you know, needing to do it and also just being interested in learning stuff, but taking little bits of knowledge that, that are about electronics that may not seem related and then kind of piecing together as much as I could from that. Um, I still don't have a formal electronics training, which I try and tell everybody who who meets me because, like I said, I feel like an imposter a lot of days. There's guys like Dave Royer who was like a, a Navy submarine tech or something like that, you know, and <laughs> talking to him, I just feel lost because he's talking about stuff and I'm like, okay, slow down so I can write this down and look it up later. And here I am just trying to make cool stuff and learning what I can by uh, doing, which I don't know, school of experience is a pretty, pretty successful school, I think. I completely agree. It's like you go, even if you had a formal education, you're still going to go work for a manufacturer, work for a mic designer, and you're going to learn how everybody actually does things. It's theory versus execution is a whole other thing. Yeah. The base of, you know, school is great for getting like the base knowledge, but all the most successful people in my music program dropped out of the music program, like in year two or three or four, because they were already doing it. They're like, why am I spending this much money to get a piece of paper? I already know the people I need to know. I know the things I need to do. I have experience in the real world. I'm touring with Gwen Stefani or whoever, you know, why exactly am I still trying to get this degree? And they just dropped out. And those are still to this day, some of the most successful people that came out of the music program as specific as the ones that didn't finish it because they were already doing it. Same story here. Everybody I know that dropped out and they're crushing it long before they got to school and long after they dropped out. So, you know, while we're talking about like kind of learning electronics, do you feel like a lot of that's being lost in the current state of the audio industry? Do you feel like if you're an engineer, you should try to learn some of that stuff? Yes and no. So here's the problem. There's not analog gear is still very prized, as we can see by the fact that there's about 8 billion clones of older analog gear. Most of our microphones are still analog, analog being they do not rely on anything digital inside of them. So when we think of analog, we think of a pure wave with infinite points that you, whereas digital is, is actually sampled, right? If you zoom in on a digital audio file, you can see the little steps as it's being sampled 44,100 times a second, or if, you, if you're at 44.1K. Right. You know, for interfaces and stuff, at this point, it's pretty much impossible to repair that yourself audio interface, if you send it in, they literally almost always are either replacing the whole internal board or just replacing the whole thing. They're almost like disposable because a surface mount, what we call surface mount technology and electronics, which is very, very tiny components. It allows you to fit a lot more components on a board as opposed to traditional 
through-hole technology, which is what most microphones, including mine, are. Surface mount's really hard to service, and most of the time it's just cheaper and easier to chuck the board away and put in a new one, which is kind of depressing, but it's the state of things, and that's how they get, you know, interfaces that do an insane amount of DSP that you can hold in the palm of your hand. Yeah. As opposed to before, you needed a console and how many racks of gear to accomplish that exact same thing. So there is something to be said for knowing certain things about the way audio works. Like you're taking motion of air particles and you're using what's called a transducer, which in the case of this microphone right here is a condenser capsule. And that's creating something of an analog of those air motion particles into an alternating current signal in your microphone, which then has to be amplified and the impedance has to be brought down. Uh, So understanding certain things like impedance signal theory is kind of useful. Being able to solder and quickly fix a cable is kind of useful. I used to do gear repair and 95% of it was, oh, it's a busted wire. I used to go into pawn shops in high school and like buy guitar pedals that were broken for like five bucks. And then it was like the input jack solder had come loose and it was soldering one wire and Bob's your uncle. You're good to go. Yeah. So a lot of repair is you don't have to have electronic theory. You just look at it and go, well, that wire looks like it should be connected to here and it's not anymore. And then there's the stuff where like, oh, this transistor has, you know, it should be biased. So the drain and source are like eight volts apart, but they're both the same. So we know the transistor's blown or the bias isn't working or something like that. And we can trace it back from there. That's more complicated and takes some trial and error or education to get there. But a lot of repair is just putting in a new tube or soldering one wire that came loose. Yeah. Or sometimes it's just taking a connector that came undone and plugging it back in and then charging the client a hundred bucks for your repair skills. So I definitely agree with you. Anybody who is wants to get into recording should definitely learn how to solder. Try to make your own XLR cables a couple times. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Yeah, I'm about to redo part of my patch bay, and I'm like, do I want to make some DB25 to XLRs or do I want to spend the money? You do, and you want to get that Flock Audio patch bay so that you don't have to play with patch cables anymore. You don't have to spend a fortune <laughs> on deoxit in a recording studio. That's right. Have you used the flock or, or do you know those guys? I have not used it personally, but I know Darren pretty well. And uh, Darren and Jess who are in Canada and, and own flock audio. And it's like, for some reason in the studio, everybody was still using a horse and buggy. And they were like, hey, here's an automobile, you know? Yeah. Except we all stopped using horse and buggies 100 years ago. But for some reason, this old patch bay technology from like telephone transfer stations where you know there's a bunch of ladies like unplugging and plugging tt25 cables yes yes you want to talk to buckingham palace allow me to patch you to here to the next station you know we're still using that in studios for some flipping reason and the flock's like well, what if we just you know didn't do that anymore so they they reinvented something that should have been reinvented a long time ago it's a genius product i'm i'm you know i have no ownership i don't get any money i just think it's an awesome piece of gear I haven't used one and haven't haven't seen one, but I remember when they announced it, I was like, shit, that is, that's awesome. 
It's a good box. Yeah, it's a really good box. I mean, drag and drop recallability of signal chains. Yeah, I think they just introduced like an iPad app where you can take photos of your analog gear and automatically store it in that patch recall. So you'll it'll just pull oh, wow. up. Hey, your 1176 was set here. Here's the photo you took and attach to this. And you can just go yeah. quick, twist some knobs. And, you know, for guys that are mastering or doing a lot of remixing or just doing enough business to where that sort of recallability and workflow and being able to molt really easily. It's such a cool product. It's not my company, but I just think it's a really cool box. And uh, I, like I said, I don't get any money for this. I just, I, I like innovation in an industry that is ridiculously stale at times. It kind of is, isn't it? it? You, you mentioned the clone thing earlier. And it's like, even I think about my plugins, it's like how many 1176 plugins do I have? I've got Universal Audio, I've got the CL76, I've got the BF76, I've got the, I mean, like how many do I need? <laughs> well, and it's not just plugins, right? It's hardware. Like the, the microphone game is currently a race to the bottom of, well, these guys did a $2,000 U47 clone, so we're going to do a $1,000 47 clone. And then these guys did a $1,000, so we're going to do an $800 U47 clone. And that's, I mean, that's ridiculous for like, eight different reasons. The two big ones that I see are, first of all, music is, you know, backwards looking in a way and that we stand on the shoulders of giants, but the best musicians, the most remembered musicians are the ones that push the ball forward and are progressive into a brand new thing, right? Yeah. You can go all the way back to like Verdi and Beethoven and see that, you know, and then all the way up to Cher. And I don't know, um, I'm so out of pop music now. I feel like a thousand years old. So I'm going to stop talking after Cher. (laughs) <laughs> in any case with the pro audio gear industry you largely have the same thing like the u47 is like 75 years old at this point and by no means am i disparaging these microphones i just think yeah you know people rely on the same six condenser microphones or think about those same six condenser styles and tones can't we do better than that can't we make something new and interesting as opposed to aping something that's you know decades old Yeah. Can't we think more forward than that and say, hey, what if we made a new sound instead of copying the old sound? It's like how many manufacturers are basically making the the musical equivalent of like music in a can where they're making sound alikes for Pizza Hut commercials. And that's kind of depressing. Yeah. Yeah. And I tell people that are my customers, like, listen, do you want to sound like somebody else or do you want to sound like you, you know, for your music? And that's the way that we approach our microphones is we want to sound original Ken is finally starting to record his own music again after 25 something years of not doing it. He built a studio at his place in Texas and he's using the the Vanguard mics. He's like, listen, I designed these mics to sound the way I want microphones to sound. I didn't design it to sound like a 251 yeah. or a U67, which, like I said, very good microphones. I don't hold anything against them. I just think that we can do new, interesting stuff and build new mousetraps instead of copying older ones. Yeah. yeah. While you were saying that, this kind of came to me. It's like people looking for a shortcut. It's like, well, what's what's a brand and a legacy that works already? Well, what's great? A U47 is great. So how do you want to sell a microphone? Let's just make a U47 clone. We don't even have to have our own branding. You're basically standing on somebody else's legacy at that point. You're not even creating an original brand. Yeah. Which is interesting. I never thought about that until you were until you were talking. And the other sneaky thing that I think they really don't talk about when they make clones, and if they do talk about it, they're like, well, we just went to a studio and chose the best one, is that all of them sound different. Mm -hmm. All those mics, back then, resistor tolerances were like 10%. Those were like good 
resistors, right? They had to hand match resistors in the Neumann factory. Wow. So uh, for people who don't know, tolerance is basically if I have a 100 ohm resistor and is a 10% tolerance, then that could be between 90 and 110 ohms. Whereas opposed if I have a 1% tolerance 100 ohm resistor, it could be between 99 and 101 ohms. So it's basically just how much variability is within a batch, right? Yeah. So moving on from that, on top of that, they had to constantly rejigger their designs based on electronic component availability. Because transistors, like when U47 FETs and U87s came out, they still weren't that widely available. So you have a lot of these microphones that have different transistors in them based on what they could get at the time, which, trust me, completely changes the sound. We went through like a couple dozen transistors when we were developing our FET microphones, and it was insane how much the sound varied. These resistors or these transistors technically do the same thing with slightly different specifications, and these JFETs all sounded wildly different when you put them in the circuit and bias them. It was that's crazy bananas, and just that's just one component out of how many in the signal chain, right? So yeah, it also depends on how well the mic's been kept. If anybody smoked around the microphone, if the capsule's ever been cleaned or replaced, if the electronics, because a lot of those capacitors leak, so those tolerances widened even more over time, and they got noisier. So when they say, oh, we cloned the U47, great. Which U47 did you clone? Which tube was it using? Was the capsule ever cleaned? When was it made? What batch were they using? Because they might have used different, actual different values of resistors to fit whatever transistor they were using at the time. So to say we cloned a U47 is nonsense. They cloned a U47, maybe, or they used the U47 topology of a circuit, which is fine, but that doesn't necessarily make it right. sound like a U47 or U87 or 251 yeah. or pick your poison, whatever microphone they're cloning. Nowadays. Whatever. So yeah. it's kind of, right. to me, to say this sounds like a U47 is absurd because, like, I think Capitol Records, Steve Genowick is telling me he had like 10 U47s. And he's like, I got one. I like the best. And it's not the Frank Sinatra U47. And they all sound different. They do. We have some that match up pretty closely, but between the component variation, the component tolerances, and just how much less precise manufacturing was back then, even the gains vary widely. That's why matching was a thing back then, because you could have two KM84s that came off the line that were like 12 decibels different than each other, just from the capsule, the components, the transistor itself. And so they had to match them out of the factory. See, they were modifying the mic to fix that 12 db difference they were just finding another mic that was equally gained in some cases yeah okay that's crazy and in some cases they were actually modifying on some of the neumann schematics you can actually find notes where it says hey you need to match these two transistors to within one percent of each other or these two uh resistors rather or these two inductors or finding transistors with the same gain factor so that they got you know a reasonable match and then on top of that all the all the machining was done by hand and they were using templates as opposed to now we have computer controlled machining that can do like hundreds of a millimeter accuracy every time. So the machining on the capsules as well would change how close things were to each other. And they, you know, it was German precision. So they're doing it really well for the time, but right. a computer controlled machining process can probably kick their butt now. Not because it was bad. It was just what they had at the time. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, let's talk Vanguard because we haven't talked specifically ah, about your company yet. <laughs> uh, what what made you want to start a microphone company and not work for somebody else? What was that like? What was that moment? Oh, I know most musicians don't like working for somebody else, so I don't think I have to explain that to your audience. <laughs> There's a difference between collaborating and being under somebody's thumb in a cubicle. 
And that was yeah. a large part of it. Also, so, I mean, Avantone had something of a untimely demise in California. I won't get into all the specifications or the details, but bottom line, it kind of got sold and pulled out from under California and moved to New York. And now it's a completely different company with, um, I don't know if the mics sound the same, to be honest with you. Ken hasn't been involved in Avantone for, I guess it's more than a decade now, and neither have I. That was oh, like wow. 2010, 2011. Got it. And Ken... And a little bit me were in the process of some really cool designs that we wanted to realize. And we were in the process of thinking about some of those at Avantone. Because when Ken started in 2003, your options for manufacturing overseas were really limited. There were only a couple factories that were making capsules. The capsules, to be honest, they were much more accurate than they were in the late 90s. They were much closer to each other, but they still weren't amazing capsules. They were almost all the K67 style of capsule, which is what's in a U87 and a 67. There really weren't any other options at the time. And then in the decade since he had started it, more and more options had come to the table. There were better capsule manufacturers. There was better tolerances. There was better just handiwork and craftsmanship on a lot of stuff. And we said, well, you know what? If instead of just doing most of the stuff at one factory of these limited factories, instead pulling you know, designing a capsule voicing and pulling it from the best capsule manufacturer and then getting the metalwork done at a different place that we thought was the best metalwork place. And then we actually procured a lot of our electronics instead of having other people procure it and cryogenically treating those electronics and designing things from the ground up and having it be our design instead of our modified design built on another platform. And we had these ideas that we wanted to do and just didn't have the opportunity to do And Ken said, I feel like I'm not done with this. And if you want to help me do it, let's start a company and let's do a better job and make things even better than they were. Because Avantone was, I I feel, like the best affordable option at the time. And since then, that space has become insanely crowded. And we are a little bit in that space, too. We were more so before the pandemic when all the supply chain shortages and prices made prices everywhere go up, including ours. But right. Yeah, we wanted, we still have a lot of designs in the pipeline that just, I haven't had the time or the capital to work on. We have some studio monitor stuff that we've been tinkering with and haven't gotten to. I'm working on a mic design that uses um, a different kind of transducer than has been used before. We have a lot of ideas in the hopper. We have some ribbon mic ideas that we just haven't brought to market yet. So to me, it's about how do we build these better mousetraps, build these tools that make music creation easier for musicians so that they spend less time correcting for for subpar tools and more time on the actual creative part of music which is i think why we all love music totally so you mentioned the pandemic and supply chain stuff and i I was reading around the website this morning and it kind of sounds like uh, gen 2 of your microphones was kind of a result of supply chain issues was that like you were like starting to redesign things, looking for new parts. At least that's what it said somewhere on the website. (laughs) Yeah, there was a little bit of that. So part of it was supply chain issues and certain sources becoming unreliable in terms of delivery dates when something that should take 60 to 90 days takes a year. It just completely, you know, the problem with the way we make our mics is when you're getting so many different parts from different sources, if one of them is late, Yeah, it messes up the whole thing, right? Because I don't want to substitute a different capacitor just to make more microphones in time. 
I want every V13 to sound like V13 serial number one, as close as I can get it. So I'm not going to take a subpar part or an unknown part or a tube or a capsule or whatever and just plug it in and say, hey, it's a V13, because it's not. We spent so much time working on the V13 and making it sound the way we wanted it to that I'm not going to compromise what I value in this microphone. So it's not this one in particular. There's a V4 because it was easier to set up and I'm kind of lazy. So... But yeah, it was partially that. And also we'd already been thinking, even the original Gen 1 of the V13, we had made some iterative improvements to it that we thought were improvements in just build quality. Like, hey, what if we move this to here and made this a lot simpler to build? Mm, What if we beefed up the transformer and the power supply a little bit and gave it more headroom? And in countries like India, where there's a lot of power sag during the day, make sure it can handle those power sags without having any tube hum or things like that. So... We were doing little things, little iterative improvements in all our products, but we said, you know, we have an opportunity here to make the mics a little bit bigger, put components in there that we wanted to put in in the first place, but literally did not fit in the original design that we had already kind of shoehorned ourselves or like pigeonholed ourselves into. Because you have to think on a microphone, if you look at this here, it's got a round shape. So all my biggest components I have to put right in the center of the board, the transformer, the coupling caps, things like that have to have the most clearance to them. And so when I design, I literally have my CAD file open so that I can see how things lay out on the PCB and whether or not that capacitor is going to clear the body of the microphone and how close to the middle I have to put it in the PCB. Right. So there were things we wanted to do that way. So we were able, the other thing we were able to do, and I think the single biggest improvement in the Gen 2 line is we moved all the resistors, we made them bigger which means that uh, there's more power handling on them and also less noise to them just by making them larger. And we also moved to US-made audiophile grades, super low noise, uh, super low TCR resistors. Half of that means nothing to your audience, I understand. What that translates (laughs) to is that these are much, much quieter mics. Now, this one doesn't sound quiet, mostly because it's picking up the insane fan noise on my crappy 2019 MacBook Air that I'm recording into right now. But... The noise floor on the microphones themselves went down by like two to three decibels just by changing the resistors. Wow. We also went to um, Neutrik Group connectors. So the cables are Rian, which is Neutrik's domestic Asian brand, but it's still a Neutrik brand. All the connectors inside the mics and on all the power supplies and splitter boxes, those are all Lichtensteinian Neutrik. And so they are really, really nice connectors. And that was something that bothered me for a little while. The brand that we had chosen, the tolerances could be a little off. So they could be a little loose, a little firm. And I said, we can do better than this. I just want it to feel like when you click it in, it feels just perfect every time. So yeah, we also changed that. We actually ended up doing a redesign, ground up chassis redesign based on what we had learned in the past about the previous chassis. And we just made it more solid. The V44S can now go to 120 degrees on the stereo microphone, which means that you can get a wide blum line, a wide XY, which takes something that sounds stereo and makes it sound just truly spacious. That's cool. You get like 120 degree blum line on a grand piano. It sounds insanely wide. It sounds like a space pair without the phase issues you get inherent to a space pair. Ah, that's awesome. Now, for anybody that is unfamiliar, he's talking about the V44, which is like a dual capsule spinning head microphone. Yeah, I could get it out, but it would take me a minute and a half to get into the box and everything is behind me. But yeah, it's if anybody's ever seen a C24 
or a Neumann, uh, I think the SM69, nice, great name, Neumann, yeah. was the Neumann version of that. There's some other companies that make them, but none of them are as robust as ours. And honestly, I think that mine sounds the way I like it best, so I think mine is the best. But that's all subjective, right? Microphones are colors on a palette. Totally. That's a great segue to uh, a question I wanted to ask you. I wanted to ask you about voicing a microphone. I'd never thought about it until I was getting ready for this interview. But you and, and your team decided what the microphone sounded like based on your taste and what you enjoyed and what you liked. Mm -hmm. What's that process like? I mean, did you experiment with a lot of things? Do you just have things you don't like in microphones that you didn't want in your microphone? How did you come across the V13 sound? Yeah, that's a, I mean, I will try and keep this short because that was truly a three-year <laughs> process because the first, the most important part of any microphone is, is the capsule. That's what's taking those airwaves and translating them into an electronic signal. And if you don't have a good capsule, it's like trying to make a great steak with like 99 cent beef. Apologies to all the vegans and vegetarians out there, but like you just can't do it. It's not going to work, right? Like you can't make a great steak with ground beef for a burger patty. So getting the capsule right, and the capsule is easily the heart and the most critical part of a microphone. It is that cut of steak that you're using. So when we first went into it, me and Ken talked a lot about what we liked about some of the Avantone mics he did and what we didn't like and what we felt like we, we could improve and what we liked about certain vintage mics, believe it or not. What we like about the 251, it has that beautiful like Goldilocks zone top in. It actually technically has this little tiny roll off on it. They put a capacitor across the, oh gosh, one of the tube pins, I think. And basically that creates a high end slope off of it. And what that does in effect is it makes that that all that air kind of tame down. And you just get this it's not a ribbon, it's not dark, but it's not a U87 where the wrong voice will just take your head off, right? Yeah. And we really like that top end of a 251. We said, how do we emulate that but not with a capacitor introducing artifacts into the signal? How do we build that type of Goldilocks zone into our microphone, into our capsule? We liked a really round, full, warm bottom end. I know these are, you know, you're using words to talk about audio which is the same as like trying to describe colors to a blind man so i totally get you know this is a difficult thing to do but we said what are some things we like about you know the way certain things sound the way certain records sound like ken and i both love nora jones's come away with me record yeah that record sounds like from an engineering perspective it sounds like you're just in the room with all these like really really old experienced studio cats that know exactly the right notes to play and not to play and it just sounds the engineering feels so minimal, like they put the mics in the right position and they let them go. And I love that sound. Al Schmidt. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Th that guy. I, we lost a, a really, really cool dude. Amazing dude. Amazing. Huge bummer. But he was a Omni guy, if I remember right. He liked as many mics as possible in Omni because he felt like that was yeah. a more natural sound. And he is correct based on the way the microphone translates a dual capsule microphone. But we're getting into nerd stuff again. I'm going to try and avoid that. So next step in developing a microphone is then to pick a circuit like what we call a topology, which is do we want a tube circuit? What kind of tube circuit do we want? Because there are different ways to set up a tube to basically bring the impedance down of the capsule, amplify the signal and send it down an XLR run. Right. So there's a bunch of ways to skin that cat and they all have advantages and disadvantages. So which one do we want to pick? And then from there, you start experimenting with components two components two capacitors that are the exact same values but from different brands with different construction styles or have what's called a different dielectric the actual materials in it are different will sound 
entirely different. They will impart a different flavor. Every single component that that signal passes through imparts some sort of artifact on it because there we have our ears and those are imparting artifacts on what we hear in a way, the Fletcher Munson curve, you know? Yeah. So microphones don't hear like our ears do. One, for the most part, they're not in stereo, they're in mono. And every microphone is hearing that signal a little bit differently, the way we talk about colors on on, a, on Bob Rouse's palette, right? Um, some microphones are for happy little clouds, some are for happy little trees. So that being said, we started experimenting and we would take in, you know, we would have four mics that were identical, except for one circuit, one component was like four different things. Maybe it was the value, maybe it was the composition, maybe it was a little bit of both. And we would hear all those and go, this is the one we like the best. And we would try and do this on real studio sessions. So we knew enough people that we would go into a session, we would set up our four mics in like a cluster. There'd also be like the best mics they have. It might be like an old M49 or a U47 or a a C37 or whatever. And we just put all these mics together in like a cluster on the vocalist. And they'd be fine with it and they'd go to town. And then we'd get to listen back to the files later and go, well, we like this version of the V13 the best. Why do we like that the best? And then we do that 40 more times, you know, with different parts of the circuit, with different tubes, with different, you know, that's how we figured out that the cryogenics thing is actually a real thing. It's not just snake oil because I thought it was snake oil, but we tried it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, these two mics sound so much better than those two mics, like 10 percent better. Why? And then we switched the capsules to make sure it wasn't the capsule. We switched the tubes. We asked other people in blind testing. We're like, this actually does something. Look at that. So that's how we learned about the cryogenics. And still, we treat a bunch of the components in the microphone cryogenically. And it takes money and time, but it's worth it. So so that's your freezing parts of this mic, basically. Yeah, but at like negative 300 Fahrenheit. It's not like chucking them in like your garage freezer for a week. They go to a specialized vendor who has these magic freezers. They flash liquid nitrogen in and you can't do it too fast because, you know, what happens when you take a hot glass bowl and you put it on a cool granite counter, right? Right. So they take it and they drop it from room temperature to like negative 300 degrees. It dwells there for a certain amount of time and then they have to slowly bring it back up and acclimate it. So that whole process takes like a week. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's it's a little bit expensive. So you want to get as many components in there as possible, you know. So we're cramming, you know, 10, 20,000 components, capacitors, tubes, transistors, things like that into this little tiny freezer, basically, that is surrounded by an insane amount of insulation. And they're flashing liquid nitrogen in slowly to cool it down. So crazy. Yeah, that's cryogenics in a nutshell. But what it does on a super nerd level is semiconductors and metals have like a lattice structure atomically. Right. But in theory, it should be a perfect lattice, but it isn't. Those bonds aren't always perfect because different things cool at different rates. There might be impurities, et cetera. So what it does is when you slow those electrons down, this is my understanding of it. And maybe somebody will tell me I'm dead wrong. It actually allows bonds to like heal and reform. So you get a more perfect huh. structure in these materials and that reduces resistance, that reduces noise. And it just, in the end, what it does, it makes it sound better. And I can't explain exactly why. Sound is subjective, <laughs> right? Like, totally. you know, if you ask somebody, okay, what's your favorite genre of music? Well, I like jazz. And then this other guy likes rock. Well, why do you like it? You know, and they'll talk about how it makes them feel. They don't talk about, well, I like, you know, a swung beat that's not quite triplets. And that's why I like jazz. Or I like the trumpet better than I like the electric guitar or whatever. You know, they talk about how it makes them feel. 
Microphones are the same way. It's how it makes you feel when you hear it. It's how it fits into the structure of your mix. Microphones are, are colors on a palette. They are scientifically, you know, you have to think about noise floor and total harmonic distortion and impedance and things like that. But from a artistic perspective, you got to think about why this microphone tickles something in our brain that makes the tone sound good as opposed to the tone sound bad somewhere else. That's crazy that it makes that much of a difference, the cryogenic thing. It's really fascinating. I thought for sure it was just like marketing snake oil, of which there is abundance in the music industry. You have to be so careful. You, you mentioned the snake oil aspect of it. Are there anybody else doing this with mic components or equipment components? Not that I'm aware of. There are some like custom builders that do it. But as far as actual manufacturers, now I don't pay that much attention to what other people are doing. To be honest with you, I'm more interested in what I'm doing. Good way to go. I guess um, <laughs> there's pros and cons to it because somebody will be like, hey, have you heard this new mic? And I'm like, nope, don't even know who makes it. And they think I'm crazy. They're like, wait, you make mics and you don't know who's who made this mic? I'm like, no, not really. I just focus on what I like to do, I guess, um, for better or for worse. But yeah, I think we're the only people doing the cryogenics thing. And it's just That's something we discovered cool. that makes them sound better. So we we deal with all the difficulty that adds to our supply chain. So, which is why the supply chain thing hit us harder than a lot of other guys that are getting everything sourced at one place. And that factory might be sourcing the components themselves, but they have people that do this for a living that are good at production timing and stuff like that. I'm just some guy, you know, that's like, okay, I think I should buy them now. And then Wema's like, actually, we have a 54 week delay on our capacitors where it's normally 12. And I'm like, wait, what? It'll take me a year to get these caps. Well, I wasn't planning for that. So, you know, that's actually a real thing that happened. And we ended up having to buy capacitors from like six or seven different distributors in order to get enough for our production run at like three times the price we normally pay for them. It was awful. Oh, geez. And that happened with like a bunch of other components, too. The pandemic was nuts. And like the supply chain knot is still kind of nuts in the background. It's not as bad as it was, but it's still pretty bad. Oh, man, that's gnarly. I feel for I mean, I, I started this podcast during the pandemic and I mean, I had to wait three months for an SM7. Yeah. I'm like an SM7. Yeah. Why are there no SM7s? That doesn't make any sense to me. So we talked about how you kind of put the V13 together. What was it like being a new company out there and getting mics into hands and kind of spreading the word? Was there a lot of like advertising or branding or was it just like trusted friends that started using mics and buying mics and telling their friend to buy mics? How did things pick up? Because for me, I've been familiar with the Vanguard name for years. Like it's almost like I just know the name. I know what the mics look like. So how'd you get to that point where everybody just kind of knows this product? The red helps. My wife picked out the design and drew the badge and stuff. <laughs> no, I'm serious. We wanted to pick a color it, that, it is that different. if you're scrolling through like Vintage King's catalog or whatever, you see black and silver and black and silver and black and silver. And then you see red and you're like, oh, that's a Vanguard. It catches the eye. It's actually genius. We yeah. bootstrapped the company. We didn't have a lot of money to start. So... We had to really, you know, with marketing, we weren't buying full page ads and sound on sound for like two grand or whatever, because we literally could not. And still to this day, we don't really do that because um, Ken calls it guerrilla marketing. So there was a lot of Instagram. There was a lot of me making stupid memes on our Instagram account. You can follow us at Vanguard Audio Labs and groan at some of the puns I make. And they're, they're good. They're good. Uh, some of them are all right, is what I've heard. Some of them are, are pretty bad. But yeah. I think a lot of it was social media, to be honest, back before they really 
really started reining in the reach of businesses. So you had to pay to get any kind of reach. It's like yeah. 5% of what I used to get. And then the other part was, and fortunately for us, we had a lot of old contacts that really liked us from Avanton. So, so Cesar Mejia, who is Herbie Hancock's engineer, he's a guy that I still talk to and has a bunch of Vanguard mics and uses them all the time. He teaches at Cal State Dominguez Hills. He teaches their audio program and the mics go there. And, um, he is a huge fan of our stuff and he tells people about it. And so there was some of that and there was some new people we met, like I just talked to, and I'm really not trying to name drop here, but Bill Schnee, who has engineered so much stuff. You can just go look up his discogs or whatever. Yeah. An incredible engineer and a really discerning ear. He is probably um, one of the ears I trust the most out of anybody. And he listened to our mic when it was in the prototype stage. And he was like, man, you know, for this price, I'm going to tell you, honestly, I think it's going to be a Chinese piece of junk and sound like a lot of these other ones that I don't really like that much. And then he took it back and he called me a couple days later. He's like, how'd you get it to sound this good for this much money? I'm really intrigued. So we talked a lot about it. We talked about capsule voicing and component selection and things like that. And I just literally was texting him this morning because he had a friend that wanted a V13. He was asking me about it. So a lot of it is the relationships that you make so much of the music industry. And this is for, you know, this applies to yeah. everybody who's listening right now who's who wants to be in music. Doesn't matter if you're an engineer, uh, a monitor engineer or whatever, or a producer or a guitar player or a flautist. Who you know is so much of this and building good relationships. So and I will say this because I had to learn it the hard way. Not being a dick. Like, <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous, but if you are an easy hang... If you are on time, if you know your stuff, you could be a just average player. Like I was a decidedly mediocre bass player, but I would show up to gigs and I'd know the material. I wouldn't be an a-hole. I'd be earlier on time. I'd help other people load in. That gets you way more gigs than shredding. You know, like knowing your craft is important, but being an easy hang and being a nice dude and, you know, being willing to do things for other people just to be nice to them, not expecting favors in return in the future, but just being a nice guy. Yeah. Or, you know, I will, I shouldn't just say a nice guy, a nice person in general will get you a long way. We'll get you so much further than being able to shred, but showing up to the gig 20 minutes late and treating everybody like crap. You're not going to get a lot of gigs because honestly, back in the day when, you know, it was recording contracts and there were only a few ways to record and it cost half a million dollars to set up a good recording studio. There were only a few people that were doing it and you could be an a-hole. But now Anybody with, you know, with a Pro Tools subscription and a Focusrite Scarlet can set up, you know, a quote up recording studio in their bedroom and start making records. So there are so many more people out there that you're competing with for jobs now. And there's more jobs than ever before. Don't get me wrong. But being a nice dude and just being affable and agreeable and professional makes a huge difference. Huge. And for us, that meant, you know, being nice and doing favors, but also making a good product that people just like. The people on my website, for the most part, they got the mics, they bought the mic somewhere else, and then they talked to us and said, how do we, you know, help you out and be a part of this? That's awesome. The people on our artist page are not people that we just, you know, threw mics at. Because once again, we couldn't do the thing where you just throw a free mic at whichever big engineer in order to get this great quote about how groovy your mic is. Once again, the snake oil marketing that goes on in the industry, right? Right. So. Right. The people on our website, on our family page, I call it our family. I know that sounds corny, but they really are people that I talk to on a semi-regular basis. At the very least, I love seeing them at NAMM and catching up and hearing about the projects they do. And 
you know, one of those things that we do is if somebody has a project that they're working on that they're really excited about, we post it on our Instagram and Facebook and say, you know, hey, the Vanguard was used on this, but also listen to this great record that we think is pretty cool that one of the people who uses our mics made. So that's cool. That's like bringing that extra value to everybody. I guess. I think it's just, you know, like I got into this because I like music ultimately. What we talked about before, I really liked playing music. I just yeah. found out I wasn't very good at it. So this is the way I can contribute to music, which I think is something that if the music industry disappeared tomorrow, we'd still all be doing it for free because we love it. Yeah. You know, I still go down every evening and play piano, you know, just to play piano. So that's awesome. So I have two kind of separate questions that I wanted to hit before we close. Mm -hmm. One, from the perspective of somebody that has engineered and makes microphones, do you have any advice for people on matching a microphone with a voice? A couple of things that I'll throw out, and this is different for everybody. There's a really good rule that I think applies to me specifically, which is if you have a microphone or you have a voice, try and find a microphone that actually de-emphasizes the parts of that that are already really prominent. So as you can hear, I have a pretty nasally voice. I have a lot of mid-range honk in my voice. It's something that I've never particularly liked. I would like to sound like this more often, but I can't because it makes my throat hurt. So I sound like a congested duck most of my life, and that's just the way I am. So to pick a microphone that doesn't have an accentuated mid-range that is going to make that sound worse. If I sing on a U87, I really do sound like Daffy Duck with a head cold. It just sounds truly awful. And you don't want me singing in the first place. But on a V13, which has a very de-emphasized, or not, I shouldn't say de-emphasized, but there's a lot less peakiness in that like 800 to 2K region. Mm -hmm. There's a lot less of my nose coming through on that. If you have a singer that is really breathy and airy, unless that's specifically what you're going for on a record, you probably should not put that singer on a U87, which has just an insane amount of high end. They've already got enough high end naturally in their voice. So pick something with a smoother top end. And if they need to have more body in their voice, then you want to pick something that has some mid range to low mid bump to bring that up. So that's one of the first things. The second thing I would say is so much of it is experimenting with placement. And with polar patterns, we all try and do stuff in EQ and we do stuff in the box when really that's what I was talking about earlier. That is correction. That's not creative. And the more time you spend on correction, the less time you have to spend on creative because eventually we all get demoitis and we have to put down the mix and walk away and come back in a week and try again. Yeah. Or at least people like me who aren't that great at engineering have to do that. So with placement, you have proximity effect. As I get closer to this, you will hear the low end come in more and I had to get quieter so I don't clip the whole recording because I'm in figure eight. Figure eight has more proximity effect. If I switched to Omni right now, which I won't do because there might be a pop and might ruin our whole podcast thing we've got going here, the high end will sound much more natural and less focused, but the low end, I cannot get any proximity effect if I were to switch to Omni, whereas figure eight has the most and cardioid is kind of in the middle. With a V13, it has nine polar patterns. So you can go from cardioid you know, only picking up from the front of the mic to anywhere three settings in between cardioid and figure eight. Yeah. And those three settings will slowly focus things in, slowly give you more proximity effect. And actually that changes the way, not only it does it affect the high frequencies, but it kind of changes the way it picks up the mids too. So anytime you're shifting those frequencies, I always tell people, if you're doing vocals on a V13, or really any tube mic with nine patterns, but let's say the V13, because I want to sell more microphones. I'm just going to be selfish here. Let's go with the V13. Start on wide cardioid. You get that natural top end from Omni. 
you get some proximity effect without too much and you get enough directionality that you're not getting too much of the room if you're in a uh, less than ideal recording space. Yeah. So wide cardioid and then slowly work your way towards hypercardioid or figure eight and figure out what's the best for that vocalist. Before you hit record, you should be trying to figure out what is best for that particular instrument and be thinking about how this is going to fit into the mix. Be thinking about the style of music, you know, if you're doing hip hop, you're going to want those really tight, compressed consonants, and you're going to want some mid range poke through, and you're not going to be worried so much about, you know, high frequency if there's enough air in their breath, right? Because, you know, they're, they're not rapping like this, you know, they're not Lisa Hannigan. So that being said, if you're recording Lisa Hannigan, who is very detailed and works a mic really close, you're going to want to roll off some of that proximity effect and you're going to want some of that natural top end like an omnidirectional mic would offer you. So those two things, before you even get to the box and before you even think about EQ, DSing, compression, any other effects you want to add to your vocals, think about how can I achieve this just with the mic itself? And the other thing that's kind of interesting, and you may not be able to hear it on a podcast is there's something called the angle of coincidence or angle of coincidence, depending on how you pronounce it, where if I'm straight onto a microphone, it picks up more top in. The further I move away and at an angle to the capsule, it's going to pick up less top in, no matter what pattern you're in. If you put a mic in Omni and you talk into the side, you will hear a de-emphasis at the high end. The reason is, it's a physics thing. When the sound hits that capsule and it hits it at an angle, it cannot pick up the high end as well. It just doesn't. There's a physical principle to it. I won't get as nerdy as I've gotten before. But all that being said, you will see photos in studios with people recording into a U87 and they're recording like 45 degrees off axis because that de-emphasizes the top end of a U87. If all you have is a vintage U87 that sounds awesome, but you get a singer that comes in with a lot of high end, then you can de-emphasize that before you even touch it with EQ. You can de-emphasize that just by tilting it to the left 20 degrees and then 40 degrees and seeing what works. And then the vocalist is singing in off axis. So I hope I answered some questions and gave some kind of useful tips, but I will say this, the best microphone for the job might be the one that you've got. You know, if you have an MXL 2000, like that was my first mic, I think it was 150 bucks at the time. And yeah. man, oh, the high end on that thing and the sibilance would just decapitate you still. That was the best mic I had, and I made it work with creative positioning. Still a great hi-hat mic, believe it or not. Awesome hi-hat mic, the MXL2000, but not so great at vocals, as it turned out. But the mic that you have can still do the job. Microphones are just tools, man. Like, a, a good microphone will not make a bad song or a bad vocalist or a bad guitar performance better. It's true. A microphone just sculpts, right? So... When people are thinking about new gear, before you think about the new gear, unless it's a Vanguard, go get Vanguard gear if you're thinking about new gear. V13. Yeah, V13, V4, V44, whatever. A t-shirt, that's cool. <laughs> t-shirt makes the performance better, I promise. But if you think about, before you start thinking about plugging in a new microphone or buying a new microphone, think about, okay, well, how can I position this microphone differently? How can I get a better performance out of the singer? Or, well, maybe this song just needs to be rewritten because it sounds kind of flat and bad and we need to add more movement to the melody or, or more interest to the harmony. Think about those things first because as engineers, we are a pass-through and we impart something to the signal. But nothing I do is going to fix 
a bad song. Sorry about the church bells in the background. I live right right behind a church, so you're getting, I don't know, some hymn right now. Perfect. So, and now an airplane. Awesome. It's all good. That is a amazing answer. I, that's super helpful information for people, and you're totally right. It's like a lot of people will try to buy a new toy, a new plug-in, a new compressor to solve a problem, but it's like you already have a tool, like, you know, figure out if that tool can actually do it. Like go the distance with that tool. Yeah. Before you start looking for band-aids. And learn the tools that you have. Yeah. That's really good insight. Fewer tools that you know perfectly. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to, you know, a thousand pirated plugins and you don't know the first thing about which 1176 plugin you should be using. So yeah. I I mean, I, I will say that that like you said, knowing your tools is super important and putting them up at on at as many sources as you can when you get it, trying it with different preamps, learning where that tool sounds best and what situations that tool's gonna thrive on is so, so important. For instance, right now we know that this mic is very sensitive and you should not use it in a temporary office like I'm doing when you live behind a church or an airport. You just shouldn't. <laughs> you should probably be using the SM7 that Travis has instead if you've got a suboptimal recording space. So yeah, learning the tools is really huge and and the one you have will probably do the job. I don't know if a bad engineering or mediocre engineering can ruin a great song, but I know that like good engineering can't save a bad song. That's true. You know, at least that's my feeling on it. Maybe, maybe guys who are producers and will add and tune and, and throw in new harmonies on keyboard and whatever. Maybe they think I'm wrong, but I had never wanted to do that much work. I'm like, okay, let's get a good song first before we hit record. No, it's always has to be a good song. And then it doesn't matter how it gets recorded. The, the number of scratch vocals I've recorded in like a handheld mic where like that's the verse that's in the record because nobody could ever beat that. You know, even though everything else was redone, it's just like, which used to drive me crazy when somebody's like, I want the, that line from the demo. And I'm just like, fuck, really? Really? We have to go get that, that line. That line, line. And then figure out how to make it sound <laughs> like it fits with the one that you did on a 414. Yeah. Oh, I've, I'm speaking from experience here. The SM58 to 414 swap. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Derek, this has been awesome. I got two questions I ask everybody before we go. Okay. And uh, the first one is, uh, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Honestly, I think I'm doing it right now because I've been doing this for a decade. And to be honest, I've been burning the candle at both ends for a decade, trying to do the production management, trying to do the financial stuff um, and trying to design mics. And I'm not very good at the financial stuff or the production management. And I've had to find out where my weaknesses are through trial and error, some significant like $50,000 errors in certain cases where you screw up that badly and it, you know, it sets you back that far. And uh, to me, I've had to be okay with success is hearing other people use a tool that I made to make music. And then the other part of success to me is I thought that this, my favorite part of this was going to be the microphones. But you know what my favorite part actually is? Nam and like seeing everybody and talking to everybody and reestablishing and reconnecting with people, the relationships that have come out of if this company went bankrupt tomorrow, the relationships on their own have become so precious to me. The people that I've met and the things that I've learned from them. And I think that that has been the most enjoyable part of Vanguard to me, to be honest. And which is weird because I'm a bit of a misanthrope, to be honest. And I ended up liking the people the best because there's a lot of really awesome people in this industry. One of my favorites, and I'll just shout him out here. Nobody's probably ever heard of him, but I guarantee you've heard him. His name is Scott Rummel. 
and he's a voiceover guy. And he has basically done like almost every movie trailer. I think him and Jack Daniel are the two that do all the movie trailers in Hollywood since uh, LaFontaine died. That's awesome. And he's just the nicest guy in the universe. I met him at NAMM on accident. He's accidentally sold like probably 50 mics for me because he uses the V13 and he loves it. That's awesome. And I went over to his place. Uh, He has all this cool Disney memorabilia because he's a Disney nut. I think he ended up selling most of the collection recently. But side note, he just has like one of the old carts from Mr. Toad's Wild Ride that they took out of Disneyland and they put it in his house. The Imagineers did. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And it moves. It, It was so cool. But anyways, he was just the nicest, kindest gentleman and gave me the time of day. And, you know, I talk to him every once in a while and he's just a great dude. Another one's Bill Rogers, who does all the voiceover stuff. Him and Cammy Dixon, they do all the voiceover stuff at the Disney parks. And he's the nicest guy on earth. I, I, I don't know how, you know, he makes me feel like a bad person being around him. Because it's like, there's no way you can be this nice all the time. And he just is. Yeah. So meeting these people and just chatting with them, not about music, not about our jobs, That has been really rewarding. And that's been, to me, the success that I wasn't expecting out of this. Because honestly, I was hoping that Vanguard would be doing more mics and more sales by now. I I really had a different trajectory in mind for it. And it's not. And that's okay. I'd love if everybody listening went out and bought a V13 right now. Um, That would be super. Buy two of them. Buy three of them. But, you know, it's not at the trajectory I imagined it. It's been a struggle for nine years to get this thing, to keep this thing moving and and keep it moving upwards, sometimes downwards, sometimes upwards again. But the people have been the most successful part of it to me in the relationships and and meeting people that are doing the thing that we all love and contributing to it. That's awesome. That's a really great answer. And also uh, having tube mic on voiceover is a testament to a super low noise floor. So there you go. Yeah, the that was the Gen 1 V13 too, which was already like, 13 or 14 dBA for a tube mic. That's crazy. Now it's like yeah. 11 or something. I can only measure down to 13 with the gear I have because it's uh, kind of a DIY setup and that's as low as I can go. And I know for a fact that some of our microphones are quieter and I have to figure out who to send it to to get an, an actual real measurement. A lot of the DBA microphone tests you see side note are just the circuit. They don't include the capsule, which does add noise mm. to actually measure that. You have to have an insanely quiet room and a lot of companies just don't do it because it's expensive. So when you see a a noise floor, it may only be the actual circuit inside, not the capsule included. Gotcha. And that's more of that snake oil we talked about. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Uh, So last question I have is, uh, what is your current biggest goal right now that you can share with us? And what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? Man, that I can share with you is a different thing than what it actually is, because we have some sneaky big projects that are in the works that are... um, Yeah, we'll take what we can get. Honestly, I think my biggest goal right now is to find somebody to help with financial management and with production management, because like I said, I learned my weaknesses over the last decade and I've tried to correct for them best I can, because right now I don't have the uh, capital to hire a full time CFO and production manager and production management team. I just don't. We're a small company. There's like four of us, you know. And I think my biggest goal is is to find somebody to help complement those weaknesses because I've tried to do it myself, but there's only 24 hours in a day, man. And when I was 25, it was a lot easier to do 16 hour work days than at age 35. I can tell you that. <laughs> so and I don't think <laughs> I don't 
I think that curve is probably going to continue on this trajectory. I don't think at 45, it'll suddenly be easier to stay up at till two in the morning testing a microphone. So at some point, I got to be okay with the grays in my beard and say, okay, I need some help with this. It's good. It's amazing. Derek, this has been uh, this has been a lot of fun. There's so many gems in here. I think people are really going to get a lot out of this. Uh, please tell people where they can find you, where they can find your mics, and anything you want to share with people. Uh, now's your spot to share anything. Yeah, um, we make cool mics. We try and make them as affordable as possible. We're trying to make the mics that uh, we want our music to sound like, and we hope you want your music to sound like too. And you can hear them, you can see them at vanguardaudiolabs.com. You can email me anytime. It's Derek, D-E-R-E-K at vanguardaudiolabs.com with any additional questions you have about mics or my favorite color or whatever the case may be. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. My youngest employee, Cade, they recently started a TikTok for us because I social media has passed me by, that aforementioned age problem I was talking about. So you can actually find us on TikTok too. And yeah, if you have any questions about mics or whatever, just email me, D-E-R-E-K at vanguardaudiolabs.com. Amazing. And correct me if I'm wrong, we can cut it out if I am. You guys have a like a mic demo thing where if somebody wants to use mics, they can they can get them. We did. Um, and we were trying to restart it. But the problem is we didn't have enough mics to do it with. And we kind of still don't. OK, that aforementioned supply chain thing. We're trying to build enough mics just for our existing dealers and distributors. So I actually have a backlog of like 20 demo. So you can submit a demo request, but it may be six months before I get to it. But there was a thing we were doing. And you could submit the demo request where if you're interested in trying our mic and you are interested in buying it, but you want to hear how it sounds in your own room first, you can go to vanguardaudiolabs.com. You can click on the demo button or try it. I think it just says demo registration. You can go there. You can sign up and we'll send a mic out for 14 days. If you love it, you buy it. If you don't, you send it back to us. And uh, that's that. So we're pretty confident in that our products sound pretty great and that you're going to love them. And uh, if you don't love them, then that's on us. Amazing. Derek, thank you again, man. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, hopefully I'll see you at NAM or or an AES or something somewhere. NAM for sure next year, which is in April, which is weird. Oh, is it? June last year and April this year. And then finally in 2024, I think they go back to January, which, you know, everybody likes the weather in Anaheim in January. Uh, see, that's where it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be in January. I know, right? <laughs> that's a wrap on episode 77. Thanks to Derek Barguer for coming on the show and sharing his brain with us. If you're looking for a new microphone, please definitely check his out. Also, thanks to Stephen Boyd for handling editing duties on this one, as he always does. And finally, thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please drop us a review on Apple or Spotify or a comment on YouTube. I love to hear from all of you. And lastly, don't forget to join us over at the Complete Producer Network. And with that, I will see y'all next time.